For the past few weeks, we've been looking at the excuses people give for why they don't believe or, or why they don't go to church. And we've looked at the, the excuse based on morality that God has done lots of things that we would classify as evil and therefore God can't be worshipped or, or God is evil or, or doesn't exist. We, we looked at science. How some will say that, well, science has disproven God. Science has made leaps and bounds, and we no longer have a need for, for God or anything supernatural. And as we look at these excuses, we find that they're just that. They're excuses. They're usually a, a cover for something deeper. And if you dig deeper, you find that the reason is, frankly, I don't want to believe. Now, our motivations may vary from person to person, but it all comes down to the heart, and, and the heart that says, I don't want to listen to God. God tells me to do this, I don't want to do that. God says not to do that, well, I want to do it anyway. I want to do what he says not to, so I'm going to choose to reject God, because if I reject God, then I don't have to listen to him, and we will make these excuses. We'll tell ourselves that that's not the reason. The reason is because God is evil, or the reason is because science has disproven him. And these excuses are so good that we begin to fool ourselves. It's not because I want to do whatever. It's because of this. It's not because I don't want to listen to God. It's because of that. And we fool ourselves into thinking that these excuses are the real reason. Because God is evil or because science has disproven him. At the beginning of this series, I challenged you guys to examine these excuses, to, to look at these excuses and to, to think about them and to, to follow the, the natural progression of where these ideas led. And as we found the, the natural conclusions, as we follow this line of thinking, always ends up pointing us back to God. But then comes the real test. When your excuse has the light shown on it, when it's shown to not be a good excuse, what happens then? When your excuse doesn't hold up to scrutiny, what happens? Do you change your excuse? Do you say, well, yeah, maybe the whole science thing doesn't work, but God is still evil, or, or because of this reason or that reason. Do you, do you shift your excuse? Because if that's the case, then that wasn't your excuse to begin with. That wasn't the real reason why you were rejecting God. It comes right back to the issue of the heart. I don't want to. As I said, some people seek God with their hearts. Other people seek God with their heads. And if your excuse for why I don't believe is, I don't want to listen to God, well, that's not an issue of the head. That's an issue of the heart. I can tackle issues with, with evidence that, you know, if you don't want to believe that the Bible is true, I can, I can give you evidence and I can help work through that and, and explain things, because that's a head issue. But an issue of the heart, an issue of the heart takes a little bit more than evidence. 
It takes a change in the heart. This sermon series is focused on the head, as I have said in previous messages. Last week, we looked at science. The week before that, we looked at, at morality, and, and we followed the line of thinking. We followed the, the rationale to its natural conclusions, and it ended up pointing us right back to God. But there are some people who will say, well, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter what the Bible says about God. It doesn't matter how the Bible portrays God, because it's not true anyway. It's all just make-believe. It, it, it's a fairy tale, and I don't believe in fairy tales. Basically, they view the Bible as a story no more credible than that of Rumpelstiltskin or Hansel and Gretel. But is it true? What can we learn about the Bible? How does it compare to, to these other stories? Because as I said before, when I hear these excuses, my naturally analytic mind begins to dissect them trying to figure out, maybe I'm wrong. I've been wrong in the past, so maybe I'm wrong on this, and so I have to dig into it to, to get a better understanding. And when I look at the evidence and, and follow it to its natural conclusions, I come to realize more. As I've said in the past, Jesus tells us that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And many times as Christians, we can be scared to pursue the truth. We can be scared to pursue analytical thinking or pursue science, scientific endeavors because we're afraid of where it might lead. We're afraid that, that as people claim, that it will prove the Bible wrong. But if Jesus is who he says he is, if he is the way, the truth, and the life, then we have absolutely nothing to fear from seeking truth. Because when we seek after truth, what we will always find is Jesus. And so, what about this claim? I don't believe in fairy tales. The Bible's just a made-up story. I will be the first to admit, I don't know a whole lot about fairy tales. I've, I've read some, but as for what it takes to, to be a fairy tale and, and literary genres... I am completely in the dark. It's not my area of expertise. And so I kind of had to go outside and, and look for help. And what I found was um, a, a blog, the website retellingtales.com. And on that site, uh, Hannah Moomert, I'm, a, I'm hoping I'm pronouncing her name right, uh, she gives a, a recipe for the, the fairy tale genre. What does it take to be a fairy tale? And she lays out the recipe, first saying, every fairy tale has to start with an iconic beginning. Once upon a time, in a land far, far away. Now, it doesn't have to be those exact words, but something to that effect. Something that's going to grab your attention. Something that's going to kind of set the stage. That's going to set a time period. It's going to set a, a location so that you know what you're getting into in this story. Fairy tales start with some iconic beginning like that, and then every fairy tale has a hero, and many times also has a villain. Somebody that you're to root for. Somebody that you want to see succeed. And many times somebody who's working against that person. Like in the story of Cinderella, 
we have Cinderella. She is the hero. She's the one that you're rooting for. She's the one that you want to succeed. But then she has her wicked stepmother who is working against her. She serves as the villain. And the villain many times will bring the obstacles that need to be overcome. Now, Hannah says that the number of these obstacles can vary, but generally you want to keep it in the one to three range as a number of obstacles. You could go a little bit more, but you're going to run into some other problems with your fairy tale. And we see this as we look at classic fairy tales. The three billy goats gruff. They had one goal, one obstacle. They needed to cross that bridge. They faced it many times, but it was still just that one obstacle. Goldilocks, she had three things. She needed a, something to eat, she needed a place to sit, and she needed a bed to sleep in. Those were her obstacles that needed to be overcome. Cinderella, we all know that she had to, to find a way to the ball and had the fairy godmother to help her out there. But even then, she had a second obstacle that after the clock struck midnight, she had to be discovered by the prince and the slipper once again. Every fairy tale has these obstacles that need to be overcome, these adversities that must be addressed. And then one of the main things, I'd say this is probably one of the highlights of fairy tales, and that is an element of magic. Now, this will vary from story to story, and they will do it in different ways. Some will do a fairy godmother who can just like do magic. Some will use um, evil wizards or, or a poisoned apple like in Snow White. Sometimes it's just very simple and subtle with talking animals, a raven that can talk or, or animals conversing with one another. There's always some element of that which is outside of the natural world that, that lends to these fairy tales and this fairy tale formula. Now Hannah goes on and she explains some other um, limitations and, and restraints, um, saying that you want to kind of keep it from about a thousand words to ten thousand words. Um, your, your fairy tale, you don't want it to be too long. A, a fairy tale needs to have a moral lesson. Um, it can be expressly stated, but it doesn't have to be. Um, just reading the story can, can give you an idea of what is right and what is wrong. Um, do you know the classic ending, uh, happily ever after? Generally, fairy tales need to end in, in a happily ever after. There are some, depending on the, the moral lesson, that may not end so happily, but as long as it aligns with that moral lesson, um, then that is an appropriate ending for a fairy tale. And then finally, she says that fairy tales are meant to be repeated. You need people to, to tell them to one another and to, to adapt them, to, to, to shape them and change them over time, to, to fit them with the, the current culture and to just let them evolve and, and change as is needed for that story to continue. This is the recipe or, or the formula for a fairy tale. The question is, how does the Bible stack up to this list? How does the Bible compare to this, this formula for a fairy tale? If we start at the beginning of the list, an iconic beginning. Well, if we go back to the beginning of the Bible and we go to Genesis, it 
starts kind of iconically, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I mean, it's not once upon a time, but it's not a bad fairy tale beginning. Um, it is a bit broad because, I mean, we have the creation of absolutely everything. Um, but, I mean, you could, you could squeeze it in there if, if you wanted to call that an iconic beginning. Uh, as far as the hero or the villain, well, we have God and we have Jesus um, being God as the hero. Um, the villain, obviously, is Satan or, you know, the adversary or the devil, as he's many times called. As far as trials, um, obstacles that need to be overcome, I mean, that one's a little hard. Because, I mean, we, we think, yeah, there are plenty of obstacles in the Bible, but they're not really meant for our hero. Because, I mean, we have a God who is able to do anything. He can create anything. He knows everything. He doesn't need anything. And so all the trials that we see, all the obstacles, tend to be for God's people rather than God himself. I mean, once we get to the New Testament and we get Jesus and God takes on flesh, then, yeah, there's some obstacles that he has to overcome, some temptations, conflict with religious leaders and, and stuff like that. Uh, but once we include all of those things, I mean, we have blown way past that one to three obstacles, you know, mark. Um, magic, well, I mean, if you consider anything supernatural magic, which most people do, then the Bible is full of this stuff. I mean, I, the list would be too numerous, but a short list includes the creation of everything in the universe, the ten plagues, manna and quail in the wilderness, uh, a talking donkey's in there too. We have fire that comes from heaven. We have water that's turned into wine. We have Jesus controlling the weather and walking on water and multiplying food and healing the sick. And we can't forget about the whole resurrection of the dead thing. And that's just the short list. There is a whole lot of, of magic and, and supernatural things going on in the Bible. So that one is most certainly checked. But then the length. I mean, if we want to limit it to 10,000 words, 66 books is not the way to do it. Um, it that blows way past that 10,000 word limit. As far as a, a moral lesson, I mean, yeah, there's a lot of morality in the Bible. There's a lot of, you know, thou shalt nots or, you know, love your neighbor as yourself. There, there's a whole lot of morality in the Bible, but as for a, this is the one lesson you should learn, I mean, it's there. It's kind of obfuscated over 66 books, and it, it takes some reading into it, but, you know, yeah, I'd say that there is a, a moral lesson there. The ending we're studying Revelation in, in, Sunday, in the adult Sunday school class. The ending, I mean, it's, it's kind of a happily ever after. I mean, God takes care of everything. There's a new heaven, there's a new earth, and, and everybody gets to, to be with God who wants to be. So, yeah, we kind of have a, a happily ever after. And so as far as repeating, the retelling of the story of, of molding it and shaping it with the culture, well, we're encouraged to retell it. We're encouraged to, to share the story. But as far as molding it to the culture, we are expressly told not to add or subtract from this story. 
Both in the Old and New Testament, we're told that we shouldn't be adding to this thing or, or changing it in any way, that the, the gospel message is eternal for all time. And so where does that leave us? We've checked a few boxes. We haven't checked all of them. So what's the verdict? Does a fairy tale have to meet every single item on this list? I mean, as we look at this list, it's a, a very good list. I, I would say that, yes, fairy tales tend to meet this formula. But then again, so do some other stories. I mean, how many stories do you know that, that don't have a hero or don't have a villain? I mean, pretty much every story is going to have a hero and a villain and some obstacles that need to be overcome. True stories have a hero and a villain and an obstacle. I mean, you can tell stories about World War II and you have a hero and you have a villain and you have some obstacles that need to be overcome. And so, yes, this is a good formula for a fairy tale, but it's kind of broad and it applies to many different types of stories. I would say that the main criteria that most people will look at because this is a, the, the claim is I don't believe in fairy tales. But really what it comes down to is, is the Bible fact or fiction? And what most people will settle on is that if a story has magic, that's really the big one. If it has supernatural elements, then people will automatically classify it within the realm of fiction. And I think that's what we tend to find with the Bible. With all the, the miraculous claims, the, the default position is to just say, well, that couldn't ever happen, and therefore that's not a historical document. Last week, as we were talking about science, we talked a little bit about the, the realm outside of the physical world. How in order to think, in order to reason, in order to, to feel and to love, there has to be an aspect of us that exists outside of our physical body, something beyond the natural world, something supernatural. And as we look at these tales that include the supernatural, if we've already concluded that something is possible, then we kind of have to follow that line of thinking. In fact, if we, if we look at science, I didn't go over it last week, but if we look at science and we begin to examine the, the evidence for where everything came from, scientists have pretty much settled on this idea of the Big Bang. And truth be told, there's, there's a whole lot of stuff behind that. Scientists didn't want to admit that such a thing was even possible. They wanted the, the world to be static, to, to have always existed. But as they studied the stars and, and Einstein's theory of relativity and, and stuff like that, what they found was that our universe is expanding. And if it's expanding, that meant it all came from one singular point where everything came into existence. Space, time, and matter all had a beginning out of nothing. That's what the scientists have concluded. They didn't like it, so they jokingly called it the Big Bang, and that's where the name came from. So if science is showing us that everything came out of nothing, if the first verse of the Bible is true, that in the beginning God created everything, space, time, and matter out of nothing, if that is true, then every other claim that is made has to at least be possible. 
If we can have everything come into existence from nothingness, not a quantum vacuum, that's not nothing, but from nothing, then every claim to a miracle has to be at least possible, and that means that the Bible is possibly true. But how can we know? Because there are lots of claims of, of miracles. There are lots of claims that, of people doing miraculous things throughout history that we don't believe. So how can we tell if the ones in the Bible are actually true? How can we tell if they're fact or fiction? In order to do that, we kind of have to examine the source. We have to look at, at where this writing came from, where this story came from. And fortunately for us, we have historically minded people, archaeologists who have been studying artifacts and documents throughout time for centuries. And they've gotten pretty good at it. You know, they've been able to uncover truths about history. That's how we know about the conquests of Alexander the Great, how we know about the teachings of Aristotle and Plato. How do we know that these men and their lives aren't fiction? How do we know that this is actually historically accurate and not just a, a story like James Bond or, or Harry Potter? Well, there are a number of criteria that these historians use as they're evaluating any ancient text. And the first being the number of writings. How many of them do we have? Because numbers aren't everything, but numbers are very helpful. And as you've probably experienced in your life, things don't last, especially like paper. Uh, you know, if, if you have a, an old book that's been passed down from generation to generation, that thing is probably getting pretty flimsy. And if you don't take care of it, it's just going to decay and rot and you won't be able to have it anymore. And the same is true with every other ancient document or relic that we find. We don't have a whole lot of them because most of them have disintegrated due to, to rust or, or moths or, or decay. Therefore, the more copies you have, the more likely that it is to survive into the future. And this is extra important with documents because back in the day, we didn't have copy machines. We had, if you wanted a, a copy of some document, somebody had to write it down. Somebody had to look at this document and write that word and people are prone to mistakes. And so one little mistake in a written document could change the entire meaning of it. And so the more copies that we have, the more we can compare them. The more we can say, well, this person messed up here, and this person messed up here, and this person messed up here, but if we put them all together, then we can figure out where those mistakes were made, and we can recreate what the original looked like. And so how many copies do we have? If we look at the life of Julius Caesar, we have about 10 copies of documents telling us about the life of Julius Caesar. Um, the life of Plato and his teachings, we have seven copies. And this is enough that we, have, we, can, we can certainly say these men existed, this wasn't fiction, that this is historically accurate and include it in our history books. But what about the Bible? Do we have sufficient copies of that in order to say that, yes, we have original documents? And we don't have seven and we don't have 10 copies of the Bible. What we have are 4,000 copies of the New Testament manuscripts. The, the writings of the books of the New Testament, we have 
4,000 different copies that we can compare against each other, that we can contrast, and people will say that there are errors in the Bible. Well, as we take all these different manuscripts and we compare them together, we can come to a like 99.8% accuracy of recreating that original document. Way better than we can of many other historical documents. And that remaining one-fifth of one percent, it doesn't contain any significant theological doctrine. So we have the original, we have the, what was originally written down. But that doesn't mean it's true. We can have a whole bunch of copies, the, the book Twilight, has sold over 17 million copies. That doesn't make it true to the chagrin of many heartthrob teenagers who wish it were. But just because there's a lot of copies doesn't mean that it's true. How do we know that the Bible isn't just some ancient novel that was meant to entertain the masses? How can we tell the difference between a, a fictional writing and a historical one? How do we know that it's not just mistaken for history. In order to do that, we begin to examine the, the claimed facts within that document. We begin to look at the internal evidence. What does the document say about itself or about the world in which it's placed? One of the things that we look at is what's called embarrassing testimony. The person who wrote it, how did they portray themselves? Because if the person who's writing it made themselves out to be the hero, made themselves out to do all these great things, that's what we tend to do. I don't like to be embarrassed. I don't want to share all the mistakes that I have made, and that's, that's human tendency. People don't want to make themselves look bad, especially if they're trying to convince someone else to agree with them. And so when we look at the New Testament, what we find is the writers didn't make themselves look good. The, the writers portray themselves, the Jesus' disciples, as being scared, as being clueless. Uh, Jesus calls Peter Satan. I don't think Peter would want to put that in there if it wasn't true. And this doesn't settle anything per se, but it, it tips the scales a little bit more toward the validity of this document as being historically accurate. And then we have eyewitness details. If I were to tell you a story, and I were to, to tell you a story of, of South Texas in the early 1900s, I could probably spin you a really good tale. But as it comes down to, to details, I'm gonna have to give you generalizations about geography or about the, the culture and the people who lived there. If I do give you specifics, it's probably not gonna be accurate because I didn't live in that region, and I didn't live during that time. So my details are gonna be severely limited. But if I were to tell you a story that took place in Montpelier, Iowa in the late 1980s or the early 1990s, I could give you a whole lot of details. I could tell you about the streets, I could tell you about the culture, I could tell you about the park that's down across the railroad tracks by the river, and, and I could tell you all sorts of things about that time and about that region because I lived there, because I experienced it. And, and these kinds of details add historical credibility to any story. And as we look at just the New Testament Gospels, 
Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we'll throw Acts in there for good measure. The authors of these books, especially Luke, they include verifiable eyewitness details. They will call this region this thing that was only called that for these number of years, or, or they will tell you about this leader who existed during this time, and they will give you all of these factual details that you can investigate and compare with other sources. They will give you names of landmarks and lakes and cities in between just the Gospel of John and the book of Acts. We have 140 details that only an eyewitness could have known. And again, this tips the scales a little bit more toward the, the historical validity of these documents. But then we also have to look at the amount of time that has passed. Because somebody writing about something a very, very long time ago may not have all the details right. The closer time between the events that you're writing about and the, the actual writing, the more likely it is to be true. You've heard stories of, of men who have been made into legends. Stories of, of King Arthur or of Robin Hood. Stories that historians will agree there was probably a real person behind this. But the, the, the tale has been expanded upon and, and elaborated on so many times, the true story gets lost. And that's what tends to happen with stories over time. It may be based on true events, but as it's retold and the, the more time that passes before it's written down, the more chance that it has to turn into myth. And some will say that maybe that's what happened with Jesus. That Jesus was a real person, that he walked this earth, but all the stories about him have been elaborated and that he's really just more of a, a mythical figure at this point. The more time that passes between the events and when it's written down, the more chance that it has to be elaborated upon. So let's look at the life of Julius Caesar. In high school, I'm sure you... You read in your history books about the life of Julius Caesar, and this is presented as historical fact. And as I said, we, we have only a certain number of documents, and those documents that we have that tell us about Julius Caesar, they, they were written down about 900 years after his life. There were probably some other ones before that, but we don't have them. So there was a 900-year gap between the life of Julius Caesar and the writings that we have about them. Lots of time for things to, to become mythicalized. I don't even know what word I'm looking for there. Lots of time for, for the story to, to change, but that is historical fact. If we look at, at others, um, Plato, we have 1,200 years between his life and the first writings that we have about him. Between that time, it was told orally, and the story had the chance of changing. Aristotle, we have 1,400 years. So we have these massive amounts of time for these historical figures that nobody denies actually existed and lived the lives that we say they do. But what about the Bible? The New Testament, the earliest copy that we have of any New Testament document is the entirety of the book of John, and it's dated at 200 A.D. Every book of the Bible, scholars will agree, in the New Testament were completed between the years of, of 70 A.D. and 100 A.D. That means that 
With Julius Caesar, we have 900 years. With Plato, we have 1,200 years. But with the Bible, even using the most outlandish numbers, we have a gap of maybe 150 years, probably less. Most scholars will agree that this is not enough time to turn a man into a myth. It's not enough time for, for it to be elaborated upon because it's within the lifetimes of many people who have actually witnessed this who could speak against these mythical claims. Now, there are lots more reasons. There are lots more evidences that, that historians will use. They'll look at um, external evidence, what other people have said, what other writings uh, corroborate the, the story that's being told, and we have lots of that in the Bible, too. Um, the, the fact that the, the authors were willing to die, ex excruciating evidence, that they would not recant their tales, they would not turn away from their claims, even at the threat of death. Now, I'm not going to cover all of these reasons. There are lots more out there. But even with all of this, even with, with all of this historical evidence that more and more just tilts the, the scale more and more towards being historically valid, there are still people who, who will claim that the New Testament writings cannot be trusted as historical sources. The question is why? If it's stacked up so well in, in all of these areas, why are so many people still reluctant to say it's true? Why will skeptics not concede that, that there's at least a possibility that it's true? And I think the answer follows what we talked about last week. When we do science, we all have our personal bias. We all have our presuppositions for how we think things are going to go. And we have to check those. We have to, to set aside those biases and look at the evidence objectively. And the same is true with historical sciences. We have to put our own preferences aside. We have to look at things as they are, not as we want them to be. Christian apologist J. Warner Wallace says this exact same thing. He says, if skeptics were willing to give the Gospels the same benefit of the doubt they're willing to give other ancient documents, the Gospels would easily pass a test of authorship. We have a lot of evidence that points to these documents being historically accurate. They may have some outlandish claims that we don't want to consider being possibly true, but that doesn't change the fact that these documents are real. And when, when evaluated fairly, they stand up even better than many other historical documents. If we look at, at just the, the agreed-upon facts, if we evaluate the Bible fairly, just like any other ancient document, there are a number of universally agreed upon facts. That is that Jesus existed. That is a historical fact. That there were claims that Jesus went around doing miracles. Even the people who didn't like him went around claiming that Jesus did miracles. That Jesus began to gain a following. And this began to disturb the religious leaders who ended up crucifying him for the crime of blasphemy. That there was a claim that after he died, his disciples claimed that he was resurrected and there was never a body found. 
and that the disciples were willing to die for this claim that they saw the resurrected Jesus. These are indisputable facts of history. But there are many people who don't want to admit them, who don't want to even consider that the Bible has any credibility that, that, to say that just the, the Bible's just a, a fictional story, just a, a made-up fairy tale. But the historical evidence leans toward a historical document rather than a fairy tale. Now again, I can give all these facts and I can tell you all these details about the Bible and why it's reliable. And that will satisfy the questions of the head. But it's not going to address the issues of the heart. And if this, if this excuse is, is washed away, those who don't want to follow Jesus are going to find another excuse. And this ends up being the crux of the problem. We can claim that the Bible is all fiction and fantasy, but that just doesn't add up. As we follow the evidence, it points right back to God once again. If we follow the natural conclusions, then the story of Jesus has to be credible and, and historically accurate based on the standards for all history that we know. To discredit this one is to discredit anything that we could ever know about history. Yet people still do it. People will still claim that you can't trust the Bible, that it's just a made-up story. And the reason is not because of lack of evidence. The reason is not one of these excuses. The reason is, the real reason, is they don't want to believe in God. They don't want there to be a God. If there's no God, then I don't have to follow his rules. If there's no God, then I don't need to do what he says. I can do whatever I want. I can sleep around. I can, can do this. I don't have to give to the church. I don't have to be nice to my neighbor, whatever it is. If there's no God, then I don't have to follow all of this. And so despite any amount of evidence, there will always be people who will find another excuse, who will ignore the evidence because it's not a problem with the head. It's a problem with the heart. Fortunately for us, that's exactly what Jesus came to take care of. Jesus came to speak to the heart, to cleanse the heart, to free us from the shackles of sin and, and all those things that bind us. If we are just willing to listen to him, if we are willing to put our own selfishness aside, if we will, if we will cry out to him, he has already made the way for us to reach him because that's who God is. As we read through the scriptures, as we read through who God is, as we experience him for ourselves, we can't help but understand that God is love. That's who he is, and he loves you exactly where you are. Even if you don't want anything to do with him, he still loves you, and he still wants to have a relationship with you. Jesus wants to help take care of that problem in your heart. As I've said, I, I like studying this, these things. My brain is wired in this way. And I know that some of you just, you, you, you go along with me, but you're not really coming with me on, on this. But really, the heart of it is the heart. That if you don't want to believe, 
You won't. And that's what the rest of the year here is for. That I will tell you over and over again about the love of Jesus. That I will tell you over and over again who Jesus is, who he is and, and what he's doing and who he wants you to be. And so I would invite you, I'm going a little off script here. I would invite you, if you, if you want, if you are willing, if you have even the, the slightest inkling that maybe this stuff is real and maybe my excuses are just that, excuses, I would invite you to pursue, challenge those excuses, to see the real reasons why you're hesitant, the, the, the real reasons why you are resistant to this idea of a loving God who wants more for you than you could ever provide for yourself, who wants to save you from this path of destruction that you are heading down. If everybody would close their eyes and bow their heads, I'm, I'm not going to, to ask you to, to raise your hand or to come forward. But I will challenge you once again to look within yourself at the reasons that you give the reasons why you don't want to go to church, the reasons why you don't want there to be a God. And to look past those, what's the real reason? Is it because I just don't want to listen? I have so much life to live. I want to be wild and carefree in my younger years, and I will follow God when I'm older. Truth is, you're missing out. The gospel of Jesus is not for a time later on so that you can go to heaven. The gospel of Jesus is for right here and right now. And he wants to make a change in your heart and a change in your life, and he wants to make your life better. If that's what you want in your life, you can't say the words wrong. You can't mess it up. Lay before Jesus the feelings of your heart, and he will meet you. Seek after him, and he will be there. Heavenly Father, I pray for those who have excuses. Those who have reasoned and, and rationalized themselves and have, have told themselves that this is the reason why I don't believe because of this, that, or whatever, when really, when really the reason is they don't want to. They don't want to give up control. They don't want to, to follow what you have in life. They would rather do their own things and, and experience the things of this world. God, the things of this world are fleeting. And they will all pass away. And they will leave us broken and empty. And so God, I pray for those who just don't want to follow you. God, that you would speak to their hearts. That you would get through all the excuses. And that you would reveal to them the life that you have. The satisfaction that you have. The peace that only you can offer. 
God, work in our hearts and challenge all of us. Challenge all of us to, to examine our excuses. To follow them, God, to where they lead. Because we know that if we follow the truth, we will always find you. Be with us this week. And God, may you be at the front of our minds. We pray this in your precious and holy name. Amen. God bless you guys. I love you. And we'll see you next week.